Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Mastermind.fm. This is Jean Galea, and with me today I have Karim Maruki from Crowd Favorite. Um, Karim is an, uh, a big agency guy. He's always been involved with agency work, always in services. This is his specialty, and therefore it's something new for our podcast because we've usually been uh, talking to people who are more involved in products. So this is the kind of interview that I've been waiting for, where we can dig deeper into the services space. And so for this interview you'll hear Karim sharing his experience from the very first company he founded and right up to where he is today and he's actually been involved in quite a number of exits and mergers and acquisitions so we'll learn about that and we also have some great advice from Karim on how to network effectively and uh, generally this podcast episode has been really really interesting for me and I'm sure it will be interesting for you as well as a listener whether we're involved in services or products or just even outside of the WordPress space, Karim is a really charismatic guy who will simply teach you a lot of good stuff. So hang around for this uh, podcast right till the end and uh, let's get right into it. Before we start, let's have a short break for our sponsor and then we'll get back with Karim. With a veritable universe of interesting content out there, you know there's a magnitude of that content prime for your website or blog. And no matter what your niche, WPRSS Aggregator is here to help. Nearly every web destination, from major news sites to industry blogs, makes their content openly available via RSS feeds. Regardless of your visitor's interest, you can use your knowledge and expertise to choose the best sources, making continuous fresh content convenient and interesting. Functioning as an all-in-one WordPress plugin that makes RSS feed aggregation and content management that's easy to set up and maintain, getting started is a snap with a free version, letting you display the latest news, articles, job postings, and more. Over time, you may decide to add special content, such as full articles or YouTube videos, which is precisely when you'll be delighted in discovering the additional options provided by our premium add-ons. So gather the web and become a proud contender for the finest viewership. Get started now at WPRSSaggregator.com slash mastermind okay and uh, so welcome to the show karim thank you it's a pleasure to be here john so uh, you're the first actually guy who's focused on services so far we've had a lot of product people so it will be interesting to see your perspective on things and the wordpress industry in general but before we start uh, i'd like to know and share with the audience about your background and you know even i know that your your surname is italian i know there's this italian connection and so i'd love to learn a bit more about you know how you grew up and also how you got into the wordpress space eventually uh, sure. So um, a lot of people who, who know me know that I was born of an Italian father and American mother, born in Rome, uh, spent my first five years there, and then spent from five years old almost until my late 20s constantly traveling. Uh, I haven't lived up until then in one place more than maybe a year. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've been all over the world from Rome to California to Zambia, uh, Kazakhstan, Dominican Republic, all over the world. Awesome. So this was part of your work or just uh, you were traveling with your family at the time? My father had an architectural engineering firm that specialized in large international projects. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was lucky enough to be uh, a mix of what today folks are calling homeschooled and uh we're actually going to some schools locally in some places. So uh, I had the benefit of learning lots of cultures very early on. Mm, it's very interesting. Uh, so me and my wife, as you might know, we love traveling as well. And uh, this is one of the questions we had, actually, when we have eventually, if we have children, whether it would be a good thing to just move around still or whether it's best for children to live in one particular place. Seems like it worked well for you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of people hear about my background and they say, oh, that's terrible. You must not have had uh, set friends growing up. I feel the opposite. I have friends all over the world. Um, I have friends all over the world that I try to keep up with even before Facebook was around. So it's a lot of fun. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful for the cultural aspects of being able to really understand um, lots of different people that I meet around the world. 
And so I think we'll get back to this and how it connects to maybe how you actually relate to people, why you're so good at networking. And I think this is all part of this connection that you have with having lived in so many different places. But before we get to that, let's sort of have paint a picture of how you actually transitioned from, I think it was, you studied the architecture actually, no? Yes, I was lucky enough to go to uh, La Sapienza University in Rome. And uh, upon leaving that uh, that great institution. I worked for a little while with Autodesk, the makers of AutoCAD, uh, learning very quickly that I was no good at programming. Um, I ended up working with uh, what they called at the time the wishlist team, traveling around with marketers and engineers talking about what would be in the next version. Um, as I was doing that, uh, a friend of mine was quitting uh, Symantec, Norton, Peter Norton Group at the time, to start an ISP back in 1994. And it was a, it was a great time. I was hanging out and being a geek, loving hardware, wanting to see what they were plugging in these new fancy 33.6 modems. And uh, it was a lot of fun because uh, one afternoon as I'm sort of hanging out between trips, the phone rings and uh, it's, uh, they say, Hey, can you, uh, can you please answer that call? We're, uh, we're busy back here with a with the servers, sure thing. I pick up the call, and uh, and being the kind of guy I am, when they said, "Hey, uh, we're we're looking in the yellow pages for a company that makes web pages, and under internet, we found your company. Uh, do you guys do web pages?" I asked, uh, "Who's the client?" And uh, they said, "Oh, Nissan." So I said, of course we do web pages. <laughs> yeah, of course we do web pages. Come on down. And they said, sure, we'll come down next week, hang up the phone. And I say, hey, guys, great news. I got you a first project. And they said, project? I said, yeah, this, this company wants you to build a website for Nissan. And they go, we, we're an ISP. We know nothing about building web pages. What do you do? <laughs> so so I, I stayed down there a few more days, and we figured out how to build a website. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the beginning of my first web shop. Nice. <laughs> These are way before WordPress came into being. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> this was all HTML. Yeah, I guess it was even before CSS. It was. Yeah, we were looking up the uh, the standards. We were looking up the standards <laughs> of what they were doing in uh, in Switzerland with, with HTML 1.0. Wow, nice. And so did that transition into being your first business? So yes, so that uh, I quit Autodesk and uh, helped start a firm right out of that same ISP office. Uh, over the next three years, the ISP slowly died and the web shop became one of Los Angeles's first web shops. Uh, that we ended up doing lots of work with different partners and some um, some large uh, movie studios and larger clients because there weren't a lot of us around at the time. So we grew that shop to about 15 people. Nice. And so I think uh, in this first, uh, if we had to analyze what led to this first success. I guess it was being really in the right place at the right time. No? Yep. And and being just a mix of brave enough and dumb enough to take a risk in something new. For sure. And uh, yeah, being in, in Los Angeles, I think these were probably... Most of the early adopters were people in the media business who were in Los Angeles, I would imagine. There were a lot of a lot of them here in LA. There were even more in New York at the time. All right. So so that was your first business. Is this Metnet? That would be Metnet, yes. And so it was eventually sold to you to US Web? Interesting interesting idea there. Um <clears throat> my majority partner, I was just a junior partner in the firm, my majority partner didn't want to sell. So I actually had to figure out a way that I could take some clients and some of the staff with me and leave other things behind because we had two different very ideas uh, of how to run a business. So uh, I had to ex I had to negotiate an exit before I could actually get over to US Web. But yeah, I joined US Web and started working on corporate clients. And how old were you at the time? Just out of curiosity. Uh, let's see, that was uh, 1997, so I would have been 25. Right, so still very young, even. Yeah, yeah. it was the wild west of the, of the internet <laughs> at the time. 
All right. So then it's US web and you still continued obviously building websites based on your experience. And that's where you are leading the team that you had kind of um, brought over from MetNet, right? Oh, US web turned my life inside out and upside down. Um, they were an incredible company at the time. They actually paid for training to turn us into managers with management consulting companies. I went from working from a team of 15 to the, by the time I left US web, um, through direct reports, I had a team of almost 200. Wow. It was incredible. Yeah. And what span of years are we talking about? Uh, Two years, believe it or not. Two years. Yeah. <laughs> That's fast, two years. Bro. Two years where I just didn't I didn't even remember what my name was or what I was doing. <laughs> I think the company at the time went it was a roll up strategy, so it went from like eighteen hundred employees total to almost seven thousand by the time I left. Wow. Yeah. And so how did you, you exit from that company? So US Web uh, CKS, which was a formal name of the company, decided at some point that they were going to change business models from producing websites to telling uh, large companies how to build them, um, turning into more management consultants and digital consultants. And my team were all production folks. I loved producing websites. While I worked with strategists, we were all about the production. So when that was made clear, I pitched US Web on the idea of sending a SWAT team of Americans to Europe, basing on, on how I'd grown up and seen how the different cultures work. I wanted to bring uh, American internet expertise to Europe because Europe um, was traditionally, almost fashion-wise, um, six months to a year behind what they were doing in business digitally in the US. And they were willing to pay more for Americans. So I, I pitched the management team there this idea. And they said, no, no, we've already acquired some European shops. We're not interested in, in bringing some, some Americans there. So I literally got a verbal okay to show my presentation to somebody else. I got on a plane and I met with a country manager of WPP in Italy and showed him the same um, presentation. And almost instantly, they uh, were interested in funding us as a VC. Um, we signed a, a letter of intent for $5 million worth of, of funding. And I hired almost 30 people that I used to work with at US Web within a month's time to instantly put up the first Velodia. Nice, nice. So this was put up in Italy then? So it was set up in Italy, in Milan. And then we opened offices in Culver City in Los Angeles um, and in Milan simultaneously to work with European clients. And uh, U.S. clients as well, or it was just... Yep. We, uh, we were agency of record for two years straight for Miramax doing digital shops, digital websites. And uh, we also did a bunch of stuff for other uh, in movie industry clients and some uh, fortune clients here in California. But our main focus was European at the time. And then our investors uh, at, at WPP decided to merge us with Inferencia, which was a giant IT services shop in Milan at the time. There were already about 200 people. We had grown to about 45 almost overnight. Um, so we merged into Inferencia and over uh, 2000 and 2001, um, I was uh, on the board and uh, one of the managers that took Inferencia public on the Italian stock exchange, which was an experience all on its own. And so at the time you were living in Italy or were you just still living in, in LA? <laughs> I was because I was doing the road trip for the IPO and managing my international team, um, there was an 18-month period where I was spending four to five days in the U.S. and then four to five days in Italy constantly, back and forth. Um, I had uh, an apartment in each city, and I would just take my laptop back and forth. Um, it, was, it was incredible how quickly you get used to not having a time zone is pretty impressive. And so I'm curious as to what was like the driving force behind those, behind you in those years. What was the, like, because to, to pull that off, you need a lot of energy. You need more than energy. I think there's some grand, there vision behind that. I'm really passionate about building teams and about 
delivering something. I think you can trace it back to my my architecture roots of actually building something that will last. Um, I want to build a team and I want to be seen as the best possible quality. So I've always focused on uh, fortune clients. I've always focused on large projects. Uh, it's just um, sometimes uh, the one time I tried to do small business, it was an instant failure and I got out of it very quickly. Um, my hat's off to all the folks out there who can work with small small clients. I've never been able to figure out how to do it. Um, but I've, I've had this drive to create something larger than myself um, and uh, trying to trying to build those teams. Uh, up until what is now crowd favorite, it was just I was always finding these what I call artificial exits. Um, and, you know, whether it's merging into another company, whether it's IPO. Um, and why do you call them artificial? Because they're usually, they're usually born out of opportunity, but then the act of exiting in professional services changes the company so drastically that it is the end of that entity. You can keep the name, you can keep, it, it just changes it. So whether you're going to call a company X, Y, or Z, trying to create a company that can become almost generational, like uh, some large law firms or accountancy firms, um, is something that's very intriguing to me and something that I've always looked at. All right. So um, so this is, we're at the stage of inference, yes, still? And then... Uh... Yep. This is around 2001, 2001, yep, 2001, uh, it went public. And then uh, in 2002, I really decided to go walk about as I walked away from Infidencia and the IPO. Um, and that's where I started really researching uh, not only the traditional agency space, because we think of ourselves as unique, but before us, there was Madison Avenue. And Madison Avenue has been around um, since the late 1800s, really. And anything we think we've thought of has really been done in advertising before. So I started researching the rise and fall of the agencies before digital. And it comes down to most of the agencies are either cult of personality based around leadership or um, clients, um, or they're institutional. And how do you create something that's a little bit more middle of the road, something that's like a, a good professional services company or an accountancy or law firm that has its own soul? Um, Can I so just stop you there for a second? Sure. I sure. think maybe we should dig deeper on what what's the difference and what entails being a cultural uh, built around a cultural figure you said mm -hmm. and institutional what those mean exactly sure so if you look at most firms most firms are started by a founder who is in digital either an engineer or a designer uh, even a madison avenue art director or account manager and they build their culture around that person how that person is a success how that person Uh, moves forward. That's only scalable to a certain sense. That's problem number one. Pro problem number two is if that person ever leaves, it's hard to create that culture. You have to transition that culture away from that person or it won't be able to, to sustain. So you end up with a bell curve of growth um, that will just bottom out at some point. And this is specifically for services? This is for services, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the institutional the institutional side of it is there's large holding companies that own lots of brands, and that's just a financial play. Um, at WPP and Interpublic and others, they actually make their brands compete against each other. That's true. We see that's in the hosting space as well. I know it's exactly. not services, but... Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. And so the third uh, variation of that that you were speaking about was... So if, if you look traditionally at um, the generational large law firms in Europe or the U.S., if you look at uh, large accountancy firms or small private banks, they base themselves on the idea of creating groups of leadership with cultural dynamics that aren't necessarily based on one person. Um, a quick example to dive into crowd favorite today I don't directly as CEO 
spend a lot of time speaking to each individual employee. I let the department heads, I let the project managers, I let the folks who are working with me define what that culture is. I have my hand on the rudder for the general direction, but it's important that it's not based on, well, Kareem said this and Kareem said that, because then they're all making decisions based on what they think I want to do, not on what the best practice is. So I may push a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right, but it's really about having the right team. And I know we'll talk about teams a little bit later, so structure. Um, so that really, after I, I did that that research, um, I came back and um, I tried a little experiment. I, I said uh, I wanted to um, start a small a small agency. Um, and I had a chip on my shoulder. Being young, this is in 2003, um, I had a chip on my shoulder because when we merged uh, Velodia with Inferentia, they gave up the name and the trademark. So I started Velodia again, just because I wanted to see the success out of the ashes and so forth and so on of a merger. So I started that company again with a little bit of a different direction in going into uh, digital support of events, CTIA, CES, large um large events, uh, doing everything from the websites to um, helping create the kiosks and working with companies like George P. Johnson. Um, we did that for a few years very uh, successfully, and again, with large corporate clients. And um, I had a life-changing event in 2005. At the end of 2005, uh, my father passed away, and I realized that I'd spent the last year, thankfully, because I was running a lifestyle business, what you and James were talking about in one of your last episodes, um, I was able to step away for that last year of my father's life. And I'd really essentially exited my own company successfully because they were running it all by themselves. So after the period of mourning, um, it was evident that it was time for me to move on. So we engineered a, an employee buyout. Um, and that company um, is still open today in Pasadena, California, and, and has changed their business plan a little bit, but uh, I'm not no longer involved with them at all. Um, so that was interesting also trying to figure out uh, when it's time to leave. Um, and that taught me a lot of what I and bringing today to uh, Villa Media and Crowd Favorite. Right, that's very interesting. I guess it's not something that you hear every day when this kind of exit takes place. It's usually we're looking towards, you know, someone bigger uh, acquiring our firm or something like that. Yes. But I, I like this idea a lot. So we could maybe expand even more on how the dynamics of that would work. And uh, I don't know, how, okay. could you walk us through what what that looked like, you know, because I guess the employees, you know, they're suddenly looking at you as still, even though you're not maybe managing the day-to-day -day stuff, you're still the leader of the company. So how do you transition that into them buying out the business? What I tried to do is put together, instead of a replacement for me, um, a, a small group. There were three individuals who I tried to say, here's the power to lead the rest of the company forward. And I spent um, a few months transitioning the client relationships and walking them through how to do these things to try and make it go through successfully. Um, they, had, they had very good success in retention of talent. Their client management success was a little bit mixed. Um, the, the company did great. Uh, at certain points after I left, but they weren't able to always keep all the same clients I had. And I think that goes towards um, not all clients are good for all cultures. And as they change the client culture, they had to adapt that. Um, we've seen that from uh, today in what was Crowd Favorite Classic to what is Crowd Favorite today. Um, Alex King was an incredible engineer and just incredible to work with. The client persona that he attracted isn't one that our team today works with very easily. So we've transitioned a little bit the types of clients that we work with. We do still have some of the original crowd favorite classic clients, but others that were really dependent on that Alex King touch, we've uh, we've transitioned away from. And so still, there is still an element of, uh, you know, the CEO or leader or founder of the company 
uh, infusing the company with his own brand of culture. And that will obviously attract a certain type of clients as well. Exactly. Always. Always. That's true. So what your idea was is to make a multi-generational company that will continue even if you're not present. It will not necessarily keep the same culture, but it will keep afloat and keep being successful without having the dependence on one person. If if you can create in today's society a place where people want to remain rather than feel that they have to, and you can create a place that exudes to clients, we do top quality work, the rest will come naturally. So, I mean, if you look at the transition of, of the workplace, um, even in old traditional agencies pre-internet, people worked as careers. And then in the agency world, even more than other traditional jobs, they would bounce around between agencies. That's hit a high point today with the digital agencies where people last 18 to 24 months before they look for their next gig. Um, and that's because they're not able to grow. That's because the company is becoming stagnant. That's because there's lots of reasons. What I'm trying to create with um, Crowd Favorite is a place where people want to stay long-term. We can create challenges. We can create a career path that isn't necessarily linear. We have employees that have switched departments, have switched uh, disciplines, um, and tried it successfully and sometimes gone back to what they did originally. Uh, I'm very proud of the relationships I have with some of our ex-employees who are no longer with us because they tried new things. Um, some of them very well-known people here in the WordPress community that I still count today as friends from Jeffson, Brandon Dove, Kerry Dills, Chris Ford. They're all incredible pro uh, professionals who tried something new with Crowd Favorite and went, okay, not exactly my bag, but you know, I, I think we're still very close today, all of us, and uh, we'd pick up the phone and work with each other again. We just didn't want to work on those exact types of projects. And so just to go back to the timeline that we were building, where I think we stopped in Velodea 2? Yes, yes, we did. Yes. So um, after after exiting that, I took another walkabout, another sort of uh, sabbatical. And um, I had a lot of friends while I was at the last companies always asking me, hey, you guys build these six-figure giant projects. Um I have a cousin who wants to sell mugs on the internet. Can't you create a quality site for me for under $5,000? So just like everybody else, uh, back in 2006, seven, I said, all right, let me take a look at uh, content management systems and specifically open source content management systems. And let me look at it from my point of view, not as a developer, because while I have actually written PHP before, uh, I'm not an everyday developer, but let me take a look at it from the business point of view. And I looked at um, um, Joomla, Drupal, and WordPress. And I was so impressed by the possibilities that WordPress had. And I was so repelled by the direction that Drupal was going um, as a community and how they were developing, um, which is a, all a conversation in itself. It's a great platform. It works wonderfully for a lot of uh, clients out there, but it just, it didn't go towards what I was trying to, trying to put forth. So I tried to look at those to see how could I put together a small CMS for small business and do quality websites for cheap. Um, I'm very happy to say, fail quickly. <laughs> if you're going to try something, it was very apparent to me very quickly that um, working with small clients, I didn't have the time or budget to really do a lot of research and development to what is the best possible project. Um, so within three months, I closed Veloware uh, and uh, and quickly said, "All right, what's what's my what's my." Uh, What's my strength? My strength is really the Fortune clients and the Blue Chip clients. Um, let, let's go back to that. Hmm. I think we should stop um, on that point because I find it very interesting. Actually, my experience with WordPress was quite similar. I, I started around in around 2006, seven. <clears throat> started with Joomla right after the split with Mambo, I believe. And uh, and yeah, that's eventually I transitioned to WordPress. But 
and I had a small agency here in Malta, but I think uh, what me and my partner here were trying to build wasn't compatible with the small business side of things. And so we eventually closed the shop as well, and he moved to work with Squarespace in the US while I started my own thing with WP Mayer and the plugin business. And I think the problem here was that we don't have these big clients here in Malta, and I think it was too early to try even to go abroad. In those days, it wasn't that easy to go abroad and get clients from abroad. Even today, it's hard, but back then it was harder. And so I, now in retrospect, I can understand why we failed in, in parentheses in our you know venture to provide this kind of website for small clients. So that's very interesting. <laughs> Yeah. So fail fast. <laughs> that's, yeah. a, that's the lesson I learned there. <laughs> Get back to what you do well. <laughs> and so here we're talking about Veloware. Is that the one? That was Veloware, yes. Yeah. Came and went very quickly. Um, the best thing about Veloware was uh, um, I found my business partner, Jason Rosenbaum, with a Veloware project. Um, and uh, uh, when he exited the client company, uh, we decided to work together. And uh, that was right when I was starting uh, Vela Media and the concept behind getting back to this. So uh, for Vela Media, it, it basically was trying to take the last 15 years of working in this business and saying, how can I create this company and how can I launch into it? So I backed into the WordPress world, wanting to build a specific type of company, having the experience with corporate clients not really an expert in open source, not really an expert in um, in what the WordPress community was. So I, I kept a low profile for the first uh, three, four years, just uh, kept my head down and worked with my clients. Most of my clients don't like a lot of publicity on their projects um, and uh, just slowly built a name that got out over about quality and doing hard projects. And that was before the acquisition of CrowdFavorite. Yes, yes. Yes. And so what led to the acquisition then? So um, something I, I don't talk a lot about unless we're talking about mergers and acquisitions is the time between uh, Inferencia and Villadea 2 during that, that, uh, that sabbatical. Um, I worked a lot with some folks from WPP on um, M&A of digital service agencies into WP, WPP companies. So I've done a lot of M&A. Um, in doing that, I understood, again, what the artificial exits are, what the value propositions were. And I figured if I could find the right companies that weren't trying to exit for the wrong reasons, it could help propel what we're doing and it could actually add to culture. It could actually add to creating a good um, a, a good experience for everybody. Uh, sometimes more more successfully than others. Uh, it's not always a win-win situation. But um, I started talking to companies about, you know, to be able to grow, to do the larger projects that are coming uh, coming down the, the pike for WordPress, we need to be able to partner together or work together. And in some instances, you have people who... Um, who are not interested in working together or have their own very set business plan. And in other, interested, other instances, you have people who are very open and straightforward and easy to talk to and looking for opportunities as well. So uh, I must have talked to hundreds of companies before coming up to Crowd Favorite and 40 um, and finding really that there was, uh, there was something to talk about there. It was very organic. There's nothing calculated about it. And so... How come? Because Crowd Favorite at the time was already, if I remember correctly, one of the big companies already in yep. the WordPress space. Yep. How come you? How come they weren't one of the first companies you approached? Were you looking at smaller ones, or how? How did it work? I? I didn't approach them because really I wasn't looking to specifically say I want to necessarily buy a company. It was looking for opportunities to work together. Um, I spoke to everybody in the WordPress community um, through uh, from Pressnomics to, you know, other events just to say, you know, um, 
to see what it would be like to work with them, to have conversations. And sometimes those conversations go very deep, very quickly in a negative way, in the sense of, yeah, this won't work out. Or sometimes it's like, you know what, let's talk at the next event. And that might be a year before you talk to them. Um, Alex and I had a couple of great conversations um, over about a six-month period um, just about culture, not about necessarily working together. And then at, uh, at Pressnomics, um, was it Pressnomics 3, I think? 2? Anyway, at, at one of the Pressnomics um, in, uh, in 2013, whenever that one was, Josh will tell us, um, what ended up happening was uh, we went out to dinner with uh, his number two at the time and Jason, my partner. And over the course of dinner, we had such a connection that we said, let's continue talking about the possibility of working together. We went up to one of the, I think the third floor lobby at the, at the hotel where the conference was. And over the course of three and a half, four hours of uninterrupted talk, um, we almost by mistake came to a deal points and to an, an agreement of what it might look like to merge the companies. The rest is history. Um, it, it, I didn't walk into that conference saying I'm going to buy crowd favorite or I'm going to buy an agency. It was just something that, that worked out. Um, and, uh, I'm very proud of that conversation. Just the same thing with, with James Archer and 40. It was something that was very organic where he was in his, uh, career and where, uh, 40 was as an agency over its lifespan. It just seemed like the organic right moment to say, I want to focus on what I do best. I want my team to grow in a way. Um, can we make something work? Um, so when we had that conversation, I said, yes. And uh, James and I did it all through conversation. Um, the, the, the inside story is um, to really nail it down. We spent uh, almost an entire day walking around downtown Denver in, uh, in 2014, um, where we talked about Everything except for the math of what a merger may be like. What it'd be like to work with clients, how we approach clients, what our philosophies are on when you have a problem employee, when you have somebody you want to hire but you don't necessarily have the cash. All sorts of these conversations that are about culture and what it'd be like to work together rather than, you know, what percentage am I going to get of X or what's the buyout number of Y? We first talked about everything else. Um, so it's a little bit different than the financial model, right? So I'd like to touch up on this point um, before we talked about the fact that you are trying to bridge the gap between the US and Europe in terms of the digital space. And uh, also the another point that I wanted to mention is that you seem to be very good at networking and you actually referenced Chris Lema's interview, uh, recent interview with On Zen Founder, another good podcast yes. where you, you said like... Uh, Chris shared a lot of secrets with regards to, <laughs> to how you network. And for me, like one of the aims of this podcast, actually having an American um, host and a European host was to kind of bridge the gap that I feel personally still exists, not necessarily in um, whether there's a delay or not on, in terms of how we're working. But mm -hmm. I think culturally, there's still a lot of difference in, between the US and Europeans and Asians, say. And I also spent time in these three different places and I can see uh, the differences. And so, for example, listening to this conversation, how you started off the discussion and uh, how it continued, you know, I guess for me, even though I love networking, it's kind of hard to imagine how I would have done it if I if I was looking to have some, some kind of acquisition of that style. And so I'd maybe because you have experience of two different, not two, actually more than one, uh, several cultures, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So I, I would like to see if you can uh, kind of deconstruct what's the difference between Americans and Europeans and how can Europeans have these kind of discussions? Because even between ourselves, Europeans tend to be more reserved. Uh, we're not that open, you know? And so we might be missing opportunities for working together as well, even between uh, Europeans. So let's start with what's incredible about this country. Uh, where I'm speaking to you from today, I'm in Los Angeles, so the United States. What's incredible about the United States is the concept of the melting pot. There is every single culture. No matter, you can say I want to go to Chinatown or you want to go to Little Italy, but the reality is the day-to-day -day culture is its own 
brand of necessary openness because you don't realize if you're dealing with a first generation, second generation, or somebody whose family's been here for, you know, two to 400 years. Um, there's, there's that mix of, you know, its own culture and there's the pockets of the friendships you make. So that's the, before was the nature. The nurture is when you grow up in the States or you spend time growing up in the States, you see that you're affected by small cliques, small groups uh, of friends. And that's unique. On the other side, I'll say maybe I'm more affected from my Italian side than other places I've been in the world. You know, in, in Italy, I know you know, um, we have the culture of Jew in piazza. Everybody meets down in the square in the piazza and just talks and is social. Um, Italy was one of the first adopters of having the largest share of cell phone use because everybody wants to talk <laughs> so much. Um, you know, it's still today, the, the, I, I go visit my family and the amount of groups that my cousin has in WhatsApp, there's a group for the moms, there's a group for this. I mean, it, 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 it blows away any, any amount of my friends that have, uh, uh, have WhatsApp here in the States. Um, there's this wanting of having a wider connection while still being private and personal, as you were saying, right? Um, so I think I've learned well from both sides of just being open as an American and also as a European being social. Um, you, you, you see a lot, especially in digital, of people who say, well, I have social anxiety or I'm not very good at talking with folks. Um, I have a group of friends that I've made in the WordPress community that we make a point of trying to find each other around the world and have dinners around the world. Um, it's not based on business. It's based on common culture and conversations we've had that were interesting. So if you're a developer or you're deep into product, I've had some great conversations with, with James, your co-host, uh, around product and culture. Um, that's not my world, but it was really interesting. Right. Um, so try to understand who you're talking to and just start a conversation. Ask them what they're an expert in and then ask some questions because always be learning. And as you're learning, if it's somebody who is really interested in what they do, you'll get to know them. And that's the beginning of being able to talk. And the same thing goes for approaching clients or possible partners or anything else. You know, I said earlier that I, I'm not calculated in saying I'm going to go buy, go out and buy company X, but I'm always looking to partner with people. I'm always looking to figure out how to do that. There's plenty of companies inside and outside the WordPress world that um, we actively partner with that we're never going to acquire, but we partner with. Um, there's some companies that we have relationships with that are halfway between a merger and and just a partnership. Um, those are all based around the conversations of, do we share common values? Let's look at that. So if I wanted to deconstruct it, I'd say, start conversations about what your common values are, whether you're talking to a client, whether you're talking to a possible partner, an employee, an employer, you know, and that's going to lead you down the path of, would I enjoy working with this person? Yeah, very good points. I think they'll be useful to many of our audience. I think it's just a question of, yeah, it can be intimidating, especially, you know, going to the States for some conference for the first time. There's this kind of energy that, for me, I think is only found in the States. And it, it can be either infectious or intimidating, the way maybe the way depends on your personality as well. But what I found is that, as you're saying, once you talk to people, they are very open. And uh, it's, it's a, just a question of finding that common values and then seeing where the conversation leads to eventually. True. And yeah, so yeah, I think I'm still learning myself on... Uh, how best to network and uh, you know find these opportunities but i tend to have also this open maybe it's also the mediterranean culture of just talking to people you know because <laughs> that's what we do you know and uh, so it's natural for me but maybe not natural is how i transition into business then right and perhaps that's the more american side i don't know i mean to, to your listeners try this the next time you get on an airplane you know whether you're still at the gate or you've taken off Look over to the person sitting next to you that you don't know and just say, hi, how are you today? And if you don't get a clear indication of go away, I don't want to talk to you, are you going home or are you going you know, to visit someplace? And lead on from there. Just practice. 
um, you know, you were talking about the Mediterranean culture and in, in, in going to the baker or the butcher or going to the vegetable stand, you ask the person next to you, you know, what's good today? You ask the, the person behind the store. It's, it's that you're, you're not afraid to do that. Um, what can be intimidating for a European coming to the U.S. is there's a feeling when you walk into some communities of there's cliques or groups and you see them just walk in there and say hi. Just do it. It can be. It's 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 a rush of fear. Use that adrenaline to just ask some questions. If you ask those questions, um, you know, worst thing that you're going to do is you're going to ask a dumb question, and you can turn that into a joke. Come on. <laughs> awesome. I think you nailed it. Nailed the feeling and also the piece of advice about talking to people at the airport or on the plane. I actually had some of the most interesting and amazing conversations with really interesting people on the transatlantic flights from going to you know pressonomics or exactly uh, yeah so it's just because i decided to speak to the guy next to me who's gonna be next to me for 10 hours so might as well <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that's definitely good advice i yeah. mean it, it i did that i do that all the time still today as a sort of a practice and i did it a few when was it uh probably about a few months ago just generally and i started talking to a guy and he said he was going home and then he said yeah because i've been on tour i said oh really yeah you know i've been been on the road now for a few a few months and i can't wait to get home and see my family oh great you know w what kind of tour oh music tour oh okay and uh and you know what kind of music and one question led to another I was sitting next to the guitarist from um, Los Lobos. <laughs> and I was like, wow, I love your music. <laughs> I would have known because I don't follow them intently. I would have recognized his face. Yeah. But I had a really interesting conversation. And um, it ended up being just a fun time. You know, if before he sat down, I knew who he was. Maybe I would have been a little bit more intimidated because I don't know a lot about music. I just like what I I, I know what I like, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it, you never know what you're going to get into. Just try it, right? Yeah, like at the end of the day, we're all humans, you know. We, we like making connections, and uh, you know, the, you, sometimes the the famous people actually complain that they can't make the connections that they would like to because they're too famous and people can't approach them. So we sh definitely shouldn't be afraid of that. Exactly. All right. So I think that completes kind of our your our journey. I know there's a lot more to come for sure, but I think so far that's where you're at. No crowd favorite, focused on big uh, clients in terms of Fortune 500 and uh, other big clients. You're not so focused on products. I know I was going mm -hmm. to ask you about that, but now I'm I've learned that you're a person who's deep on services, as you described earlier on. True. And uh, I just had uh, one more question. So I, I saw that uh, sometimes we visit non-WordPress conferences. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering whether so sometimes I try to actively go to non-WordPress stuff just to get keep myself open to other things. Yes. I was wondering whether you had any suggestions for us on what these conferences might be. Uh, one of my favorites uh, is the Bureau of Digital. That's an organization that does a conference called uh, Owner Summit, um, and for, on a smaller scale, they do um, they do conferences called Owner Camp. Um, but the Owner Summit conference is very interesting because it gets us out of the out of sort of the echo chamber sometimes the WordPress world can be, um, and looks at uh, what it's like to run an agency today. You'd be surprised at how many specialty consultants and services there are out there today to help you run an agency. Um, and there's an entire uh, community around the Bureau of Digital. Very proud that Jason and I are on the, um, the, the founders club of, um, of that community as uh, Carl Smith has, has really opened it up um, to uh, hundreds of shop owners um, but it's interesting to see what mistakes other people are doing. Um, as Chris uh, Lemma talked about on that, um, on your podcast, about, you know, sometimes some of these uh, conferences are all about um, pounding their chest and telling everybody what 
what successes they've had. Um, I actually enjoy telling even some of my competitors some of our failures, what what our hard parts are, because maybe they're doing something better. And maybe they're willing to learn and share. And that's within the WordPress world. So going to something like the Bureau of Digital, where you have um, people who have had successes who are sharing their stories, or people who are sharing their stories on their failures, which is much more interesting. Um, it's just really, it, it'll, it'll, the negativity of some of uh, somebody else's mistake will really help you understand how to not make those mistakes, right? Yeah, awesome. Okay, um, Karim, you've been very generous with your time and very open. It was very interesting for me to learn about your journey. And I guess service is not something that I'm um, that into due to my focus on products, but it was really interesting to learn all these different considerations about mergers, acquisitions, how to work with teams. There's lots of things I could ask you. Perhaps those can be done in a, another episode. But uh, before we close off, is there anything else that you'd like to share with us and maybe some parting words of advice? Oh, I'd, I'd love to do an entire episode on different strategies of growth for teams, especially service teams. Um, but um, have fun. The reason I've made it in this business 22 years is because I don't see it as work. If, if you go to work every day thinking, oh my gosh, it's another day of that, change. Have fun. I love what I do. I don't see working with clients as work. Every time we have a problem with a, a project or a client, I see that as the next challenge just to see how we can find a solution. Um, that might sound corny, but if, if your friends are telling you you sound corny about something, that's probably a sign of success, that you're really good at that. Um, and then lastly, partner and hire for your weaknesses. Don't partner with somebody who's a mirror of yourself. Partner with somebody who does everything you do badly well. Um, very, very true. <laughs> and you'll you'll have success each time, and it'll be a long-term relationship. Awesome. Uh, Karim, thank you again for being with us and for sharing all these amazing tips. Oh, thank you, Jean. It was an incredible pleasure to be here, and uh, look forward to speaking with you soon. See you. Ciao. That's it for today, folks. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I really had a great time with Karim and I learned a lot of stuff. So if you have any questions, obviously, please do leave a comment below the show notes of this episode. And as always, please send all questions and topics you'd like us to tackle uh, to podcast at mastermind.fm. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and subscribe on mastermind.fm. Uh, another note I had as I was looking at the statistics of this uh, the audience. I found that India and Pakistan are number two biggest audience after the US. So I'd like to get people uh, from India and Pakistan on the show. So if you have any suggestions on people we can interview, please get, do get in touch. We'd love to interview um, successful product or service owners within the WordPress space and coming from India, Pakistan, or even other areas in Asia. So I'll leave it to you guys to get in touch. Um, that's it. Thanks, guys. Take care. And we'll see you in the next episode of Mastermind.fm. Bye.